All right. New series starting today. Before we get into that, though, three kind of uh, announcements, good, good news announcements. Um, first, we survived Easter, which is always good. Um, did anyone, any, any, I doubt it, but did any of you second service folk go to the first service here at 8 a.m.? One, two, three. You were in the choir. You were in all of them. So no, okay, non-choir people, raise your hand. Okay, so righteous are you among the, the people. Um, I mean, all of our, except that 8 a.m. service, I mean, for those, those people, they like to kind of re-experience the resurrection account like it did, like early in the morning when the sun was rising. Uh, outside of that first service, we usually were, were usually packed out. And again, at all of our services outside of that super early one, we were, we were packed out standing room only, or only as a church as a whole. We passed the 2,000 people mark for the second year in a row, which is really cool. Um, overall church attendance from uh, last year for Easter was up even, which says something because really outside of that first service, every service is, is packed. Like we don't, we, we just can't fit any more people in the room. The biggest kind of uh, accomplishment of that was our Hollister campus passed the 500 people mark on Easter for the first time. So that was cool. And, uh, Overall, just great. If you were part of the third service, we had baptisms. It was just overall great experience. So we're hoping to carry some of that momentum going forward. Second announcement. I brought this up before, but we're about a month uh, away now uh, of our launch of something called Microsites. If, if you're new to South Valley, we are a multi-site church. We have a Gilroy campus, a Hollister campus, and a Spanish-speaking Gilroy campus called Centro Iglesia. Um, Microsites are not campuses in that a campus is an actual location where it's, it's pretty much like a church building that has everything going on throughout the week. What a microsite is, what we're starting, is a way for us to bring our Sunday morning church experience into places where there's people who would not normally have the opportunity to come to one of our services. So think like a hospital or a assisted living center. What we do is we bring in uh, you all with, with gifts and talents and you play uh, acoustic worship and someone does announcements, spiritual gift of announcements. It's the greatest, everyone's favorite part of a church service. Um, and then we invested in the technology to record our sermons so that now it's so easy. I mean, back in the day, this would be so difficult. Now you just roll out a giant screen that weighs, you know, like 20 pounds and is on this little platform and you can watch the sermon in these smaller settings. And so we launched our first one of these. It's like the beta, the prototype. And then after that, we just want to work out the bugs so that our hope is that both in Gilroy and Hollister, we would have several of these microsites going to places for people who would not normally have the opportunity to come to church. So that's really good. Third thing, uh, as I mentioned before, we have an English-speaking uh, Spanish-speaking Gilroy campus uh, called Centro Iglesia. Now, for a couple months, not a couple months, actually a couple years now, we've been praying and thinking and wrestling about how to do a Spanish-speaking campus in Hollister. I'm super excited that we will officially be launching our fourth campus in Hollister, Spanish-speaking Centro Iglesia Hollister, in about a month or two. Now, the reason why this has come together was Juan Murillo, the pastor of Centro Iglesia, started having a Bible study on a Tuesday night and had like 30 to 40 Hollister people attending. Now we've been praying about a door into Hollister for a while and thinking about how to do it strategically. And then we're like, wait a second, we got 30 or 40 people from Hollister coming to a Bible study. 
that is the seeds and the foundation of, of this kind of campus plant, this church plant. And so we're looking to get that going in the next month or two, and you'll be hearing more about that. But with all of these things, we need your prayers, we need your time and service, and we need you to be faithful in your giving. And so all of these things take time, money, prayer, blood, sweat, and tears. And so if you are praying for us faithfully, giving faithfully, serving faithfully, thank you. If, if you're kind of on the outside right now, good to, you know, new to church, or maybe you just have never taken that step, please think about one of those areas. I'm going I'm to commit more to prayer for the ministry of this church, commit more of my, my giving to this church, commit more of my time serving. Maybe it's you serving at one of these microsites. Whatever it is, Go before the Lord and ask him to, to, to teach you and to show you how you might step up your participation because we've got a lot of things going. And that's just kind of the new things. As most of you know, you can't even keep track of all the other stuff. People always ask me, so can you give me details about this? I don't, I don't know about that. There's like a thousand things. Caroline, she knows. She works the front desk. People ask me stuff. I don't know. I don't know what that is. We just, it's so much. This church is filled with generous people with their time and their money. You, you all do so much throughout the week. There's not a day, there's not something that's not going on. So continue in your faithfulness. Do not grow weary of doing good. All right, series called Go Therefore. And if, you, if you've been a Christian a long time uh, or you grew up in the church, you immediately recognize that phrase, go therefore. If not, that's okay. But if you've been in the church world a long time, you immediately think of the closing words of the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus says these famous words, go therefore. It's at the climax, the end of the Gospel of Matthew, the biography of the life of Jesus. And Jesus tells his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Sometimes this is called the Great Commission, but it's basically Jesus saying, all authority is now mine. If you're my disciples, go therefore and evangelize, disciple the nations. For many of you, though, evangelism is a, it's like, it's a scary word. Like, even just talking about evangelism, it invokes, like, feelings of anxiousness and, and fear, because maybe someone, like, you have a bad experience where someone tried to evangelize you, and, like, someone had a sign, and it said, repent, you're going to hell, and you're like, I'm a Christian, I'm leaving church right there, my church is right there. And it's like, that's not a good enough church, you're still going to hell, repent. And you have these images in your mind of evangelism. And then also with evangelism, most of us have been taught, or we do so by nature or personality default, a sort of strict system of evangelism. And what I mean by that is, when you do evangelism, when you tell people about Jesus, you do it the same way every time. You just kind of say, like, I just tell it how it is. I let people know Jesus died for them, and if they don't repent, they're going to hell. And it's like, it's that way all of the time. And likewise, there's another end of that spectrum where you may be a person who it's always, always nice and, and focus on the goodness and gracious of God. When I evangelize, I, I always just, I just tell people. I don't judge them. I just tell them about the grace of God and how much he loves them. But it's like that way for every single encounter, every single occurrence, What's incredibly interesting is that when you look at the master evangelist, Jesus, you will see that he never adopts one specific kind of style or system. He, it changes depending upon who 
he's talking to. He realizes that every single person has a backdrop with their own stories, pains, struggles, life experiences, and he takes the one true gospel, which is unchanging, and has that manifest or contextualize or attack a person's sin barrier in different ways. So for instance, for the woman who is filled with shame at the well, he tells her, I have living water to offer you. To another person, a rich young ruler, he says, go and sell everything that you have and come follow me. If you don't, you're not worthy. To one person, he says, my grace is enough. My grace is sufficient. To another, he says, if your hand causes you to sin, chop it off. Better to enter heaven without a hand than to go to hell. And sometimes you have to multiply the fish and the loaves and feed the hungry people. And sometimes you gotta make a whip and drive out the corrupt money changers. Sometimes you have to tell the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. See, all of us, every last one of us in all of humanity, we have different barriers to God. We've all been alienated from God. Sin has fractured us at our core, but sin manifests itself in different ways. And, and the, the shapes of our, of our lives and our stories affect in, in immense, tremendous ways how we hear things and interpret reality. So for instance, if a child is abandoned by their mother or father, that is a traumatic event that forever shapes the way they view reality the way they interact in relationships. If it was a father that left the child, that, that has implications for how they view God the Father. Why? Because God designed children to have a mom and dad, a loving set of parents, and when that design is broken, pain and trauma occur, and it affects how you shape reality. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Think about it like this, though. Just like children were, were designed to have loving parents, human beings were designed to be in a relationship with almighty living God. And sin has fractured something that God designed. We are designed to walk with God and that relationship has been fractured and distorted and it shapes us, it forms us, it affects the way we view reality, each other, and God. And it's traumatizing. If a child loses their father, it's traumatic. Every single living, walking human being breathing being has had a fractured relationship with their heavenly father and it has devastating effects on us all. You may say, Isaac, you're, you're, you know, you're, you're exaggerating. It doesn't look like everyone's walking around all traumatized. Turn on the news. We're all traumatized trying to figure out how to cope in the world. It's crazy. It's madness. Think about a dog. You ever seen a dog that was hit a lot or abused? All you have to do is raise your hand, and what does it do? It immediately cowers, like on an, a, an instinct level. It's it like not even processing everything. It just immediately cowers in fear. Now, every single person who's ever walked the earth, they have a story, a backdrop, life experiences, and they shape the way we view reality. 
And the gospel is the one true and changing gospel, but it penetrates and attacks every single barrier differently. Sometimes you offer living water. Sometimes you say, if your hand causes you to sin, chop it off. Sometimes you feed the hungry people. Sometimes you make a whip and drive out the money changers. And what Jesus does is he models this for us. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look in this series at encounters that Jesus has with people and watch how the master evangelist, the master minister, confronts and has the gospel confront different people's different barriers. Because sin will always manifest itself in different ways. Sometimes it's shame, pride, anger, brokenness. Just think about something brokenness. That's multi-layered. That could be sexual, relational. The Bible talks about a, a manifestation of sin called demonic possession, something the modern world doesn't talk much about. Hatred, addiction, arrogance, fear, insecurity, doubt, worry, anxiousness, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it's not like you just pick one and that's your issue. It's like a little bit of all of them, but there's different ones that control your story and your narrative. So Jesus confronts the barrier and has the gospel penetrate into your heart. But he does so differently depending upon the person. I'm going to briefly look at a guy named Nicodemus today uh, and see what his sin barrier is and then look at how Jesus and the gospel confront that sin barrier. John chapter 3. There is a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Now stop right there because we know a lot about him already. One, he's a guy, he's a Pharisee, and he's a ruler. Now he's a Pharisee. That means he's a part of the religious elite. He knows the Bible. He knows the Old Testament. He most likely has the vast majority of the Old Testament memorized almost certainly has the Torah, the first five books of the Bible memorized. And if not that, he, he has it like locked down. You know how like when your child's watching a movie, they've seen a thousand times and they could like fill in the blank. He's got the Bible on lockdown. He knows it. He's an obedient man. He's respected by the community. He's also a ruler. This is a technical term, most likely a part of the Jewish Sanhedrin. This is the highest legislative body in Israel. It functions as the Supreme Court. So it means he is on the hierarchy of awesomeness in Israel, he is at the very top. He's wealthy, respected, religious, obedient, knows the Bible, does everything right all of the time. Like, who can bring a charge against this guy, Nicodemus? It's a good dude. Verse two, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, John wants you to know he comes to him at night, most likely because Nicodemus, we don't know the whole story, but Nicodemus probably thinks Jesus is a good teacher and wants to know more. But the majority of the kind of religious establishment don't like Jesus. And so Nicodemus doesn't want to be associated with him, wants to go in secret maybe, doesn't, he's sympathetic to the cause of Jesus, but doesn't, probably doesn't want to lose you know, his, his privilege and his status in society. We don't know all the details, but John wants us to know he comes at night in a way to hide, to talk to Jesus. And he identifies Jesus as a good teacher. No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him, period. Period. It's not a question. It's a statement. Look what happens next. This is interesting. Jesus answered him. Now, this, this word is literally like an answer to a question, but Nicodemus hasn't asked a question. 
He's made a statement. And it might be John's way of using the grammar to almost make it seem like Nicodemus is telling Jesus, oh, you're a good teacher and you do signs. And before he can finish, or maybe Jesus interrupts, or maybe Jesus sternly says, look, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Whatever the exact order of it, it's bizarre. Picture Nicodemus, Jesus, we know you're a good teacher. Who can do these things if they're not from God? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. It's like, whoa. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? Now Nicodemus gives, uh, we'll call this the, the, the four-year-old Isaac's daughter response. Like, if I was reading this story to my daughter, and Jesus says, you must be born again, my daughter would go, Dada, does, does Jesus want me to go back in mama's belly? Like, th- that's what kids think. Like, how do you be born again? Like, back in mama's belly? Like, what doesn't, doesn't make sense. It's a four-year-old response. Now, what's going on in the text? Jesus gives this image of being born again. And it invokes this sense of like extreme conversion. It's like everything that is in you of old has to pass. You, you have to be made new. And that image is strong then and now. Think about it. When, when you think about born again Christians, what, what, what comes to mind? There's research on this. Um, there was a poll done a while ago that, talked to, that asked people, would they, would they mind having a Christian neighbor? Would they prefer that? And pretty much like everyone in America, it was very high, I forget the exact percentage, was like, oh yeah, we wouldn't mind having a, a Christian neighbor. But then they asked them, would you prefer to have a born-again Christian neighbor? And the majority of people, something like 70% said, nah, I want those born-again Christians. I'll take a normal Christian, <laughs> but not the, not the born-again ones. Why? Because born-again the image is like you've been completely transformed. So when you think of someone being born again, you think of someone who is like homeless and addicted to drugs and then they encounter Jesus and they say, man, I was down and out, I was addicted, I was on the streets and now I'm born again, Jesus changed me. You think of someone with like the most horrible story, they come to Jesus, man, they were born again. But Nicodemus is upright, moral, religious, been faithful since birth, raised ethnically a Jew and religiously a Jew. He's got the book probably memorized. Jesus can't possibly mean, Nicodemus, you you have to be born again. You need a radical conversion. In Nicodemus' mind, he can't fathom that type of request from Jesus so much that rather than meditating on the image, he goes, four-year-old daughter answer. How can a man go back in the belly? Can he enter in a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. Now, these verses are weird, and they're going to get a lot more weird. They're going to be very strange. It's very hard to follow. If you're honest with yourself when you're reading the Bible, there's places where you just, you like have no clue. It's like, what is this even meaning? What's going on? And this is what Jesus is, is gonna do in the next few verses. But think about it. 
Jesus, we know you are a good teacher. We know no one can do the signs that you do unless they are from God. Truly, truly, you must be born again. You must be born of water and spirit to enter the kingdom of God. Oh yeah, and that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Are you following me, Nicodemus? Now it's even more complicated. If you notice, verse six says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Now if you notice the two spirits, one is capitalized, one is not. Now, in the original Greek New Testament manuscripts, the Koine Greek language, when written down, had no punctuation or no capitalization. It was just all lowercase letters. Which means when you're reading in your English Bibles and you see something like a comma, that is the translators trying to take what the Greek is doing without that type of grammar punctuation so it makes sense for you in English. But that comma isn't necessarily a part of the inspired word of God. It's there to help make Greek to English make sense. I don't have any problem with that at all. Because I don't even like commas. They're a waste of time. I, I, look, I know there's teachers here, grammar people, you're going to be really offended, find another church. But <laughs> I could just do without commas. They're confusing. No one knows where to put them. Everyone acts like they do. You remember growing up, and now the teachers are going to revolt. You remember, like, a teacher telling you, when this happens, you always need to follow it with a comma. And then two years later, you have a teacher, they cross it out. That comma is unnecessary. All the commas are unnecessary. Let's just get rid of them. In Greek, no punctuation, no commas, and there's no capitals. So what's going on with spirit one being capital and the other one being lowercase? This, this is the issue. The, again, the people who are translating the ESV Bible, the English Standard Version, are letting you know that they feel that when Jesus says spirit the first time, he is referring to the Holy Spirit. And the second time, he's referring to a spirit like you are a spirit or spiritual things. But in the Greek, you wouldn't know. It just says spirit is spirit. So when you see a capital spirit, capital S in, the, in your Bibles, no, it's the translators letting you know that's probably the Holy Spirit. And in most cases, like 99% of the time, it's super clear. Because a lot of times it says Holy Spirit, or it's clear by the context. But sometimes it's hard to tell, like in this case. The Greek word for spirit is pneuma. Jesus just says, that which is born of pneuma is pneuma. You must be born again. Now it's going to get more confusing. Verse 8 says, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, the word for wind, verse 8, the wind. The Greek word for wind is pneuma. Pneuma can be translated as either wind or spirit. And when it's translated as spirit, it might be spirit as in you have a spirit or a spiritual, or it might be the Holy Spirit. It's the same with the Hebrew equivalent ruach in Hebrew, wind or spirit, sometimes breath. So verse 8 could read, the wind blows or the spirit blows. The translators are, are choosing for you in this case. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. Greek word for sound is phoné, and it can mean sound or noise, but it can also mean 
voice. So, in one sense, Jesus could be talking about the wind blowing and making noise where it wants, or it could be talking about the Spirit moving and blowing and speaking. But you can't tell. You can't tell. And then to make it even worse, that paragraph ends, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Let me show you what it would look like. And you fill, fill in the blank in your own mind. Like, no, it could be wind, spirit, and if it's spirit, it could be Holy Spirit or little spirit, and phone could be sound, noise, or voice. The pneuma blows where it wishes, and you hear its phone. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the pneuma. And what does Nicodemus say? How can these things be? <laughs> what are you talking about? What is Jesus doing? He's, he's trying to overlap and overlay the work of the Holy Spirit with the work of actual literal wind. He is leaving it ambiguous on purpose. The language is mysterious on purpose. It's intentional. It's a play on words. It's a way to get you to kind of say, what's going on here? It's very mysterious, and it's all rich in imagery. Now, keep in mind that Nicodemus sees Jesus at night, and Jesus loves to take things in his surroundings and immediately integrate them into teachings. So if there's some goats next to him, what do you think his next story is about? Be some goats. Now, we don't know exactly what's going on in here, but it could be a dark and stormy night. And maybe when Jesus is talking, there's actual literal wind that you can hear in the trees. Again, we don't know that's speculation. And the point still holds true even if it's not. Jesus is using ambiguous, mysterious, imagery-rich language to trying to communicate the work of the Spirit. Very confusing. It gets more confusing. Nicodemus says, you know, you know when, you, when you, don't, you don't really understand what someone's saying, but you sort of act like it because you don't want to feel dumb? Tell me how these things can be. You know, you just kind of shake your head. Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? Like, oh, come on. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I had told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? In other words, Nicodemus, you must be born again. You, you, you can't, you, you've got to be born of water and spirit. And the thing about the spirit is that the spirit is like the wind. It blows where it wants and it makes a noise, maybe a voice, but it does its own thing and the flesh is the flesh and that which is spirit is spirit. Are you tracking Nicodemus? How can I teach you heavenly things if you don't understand earthly things? You should be like Nicodemus right now. You're just pretending like Okay, Jesus, what's next? Even more bizarre. If it was weird at first, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. It's like, what? 
Again, imagine Nicodemus. Teacher, we know you are a good teacher. You come to, you've done things that are signs from God. You must be born again, Nicodemus. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is spirit is spirit. The wind blows where it wants. It makes noises and sounds. Listen to it. But you won't understand anyway because even though you're a teacher, you only stand, you only simple things. I want to teach you heavenly things, but you don't even get earthly things. Listen up. I must become like a serpent on a pole and if you believe all of this, you can have eternal life. It's really, it's crazy. It's very bizarre. Okay, so what is Jesus doing? Again, mysterious language, bizarre language, and at the end of it, the climax, this is where it ends, Jesus draws upon two images from the Old Testament. One is a, a light allusion to something from probably from Isaiah 52, and the other one is clearly grounding this teaching in a story from the Old Testament. The story is found in Numbers 21, and this story is just as weird as this, this story. In Numbers 21, God has delivered his people, Israel, from slavery and bondage in Egypt. He's delivered them from that, and they're wandering around in the wilderness, and they begin to complain and bicker and accuse God and Moses. Sort of like, you know, you let us out of slavery, but now we're in the desert, we're going to die. And they bicker, and they complain, and they accuse God and Moses. So God judges them guilty. You've, you've complained against me and Moses, you're guilty. And so God, in Numbers 21, is said to send fiery serpents to bite the people of Israel. And when they're bitten, the bite is poisonous and they die. Now for some of you, that's like your worst nightmare because you're afraid of like one snake. But you have to picture like tons of snakes fiery, holy snakes from God himself with a mission to bite you. They've been sent on a mission to bite you and kill you. It's like a horror movie. God judges them guilty and serpents, these snakes come to bite the people. When they're bitten, they have poison and they will die. But God not only judges them guilty, he immediately then provides the cure, the healing for the venom in their veins. God tells Moses to take a pole and make a bronze serpent and put the serpent on top of the pole and lift it up and tell the children of Israel when they are bitten by the poisonous snakes, look at the symbol, the pole, the serpent. And when they do that, they will be healed. What do you have to do? You just have to look at it. God judges them guilty, but then provides their cure. And how does it work? God takes the symbol of their suffering, the serpent. Moses, take the symbol of the people's suffering, put it high upon a pole, and tell Israel to look at it, be made whole. The symbol of their suffering then becomes the symbol of their healing. God says guilty, then provides healing. The symbol of suffering turns to the symbol of healing. Here's sort of like a OG children's Bible. This was before children's Bibles just were like cartoons, like when they still try to draw like legit pictures in children's Bibles. This is a, like an image of it. There's a pole with a bronze. It's a weird, this is supposed to be weird. 
There's a pole with a bronze serpent on it and people are bitten with poison and when they merely look at the symbol of their suffering, it transforms to a symbol of their healing and they are made whole. Now, Jesus also says uh, that the son of man in this act has to be lifted up. He has to be exalted. And it's, this is a royal language. It's ascension language. When, when someone in the ancient world is lifted up or exalted, it's when they kind of take their place on the throne when they become king. And Jesus may be alluding to this passage in Isaiah 52. Isaiah 52 says, Behold, my servant, the Messiah, this is God talking, my servant, the Messiah, he shall act wisely, he shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Very difficult language, but this is going on. Isaiah says the servant, the Messiah, is going to be lifted up and exalted. He's going to be made king but simultaneously he is somehow going to be so physically disfigured that you won't even be able to recognize him. And in doing this, Isaiah says, he shall sprinkle many nations. The word for sprinkle here is a Levitical term. It has, it's a priestly term. It has to do with cleansing and healing and, and making pure. So the image is this someone being exalted as king, but being disfigured, and in doing so, they are going to make clean and whole, not just Israel, but the nations. Now, after this, the, the story kind of ends. Like, really. Nicodemus goes to Jesus at night. We know you're a good teacher, and Jesus says, you, Nicodemus, you must be born again. Nicodemus can't even fathom what that means because he can't possibly be meaning, I need, I, I, I need absolute conversion, I need to be born again. And so Jesus says, you don't understand, Nicodemus. The wind blows where it wants to. The spirit goes where it wants to. It speaks how it wants to. But you don't understand these things. Even though you're a teacher, you can't understand heavenly things. You barely get earthly things. That which is flesh is flesh. That which is spirit is spirit. And oh yeah, me, the son of man, I must be lifted up in the same manner that the bronze serpent was lifted up in Numbers 21. And that is how I will be exalted. Picture Nicodemus day after day after this encounter, meditating and reflecting on that. Like what in the world was that all about? You ever had an encounter that it kind of leaves you like you think about it? Picture Nicodemus day after day like, hearing more about the teachings of Jesus, seeing him do more miracles. He's wrestling with, he's going, what in the world does all of this mean? And then picture Nicodemus one day hearing that this Jesus of Nazareth has been found guilty. And he knows he will carry his cross through the city. And then picture Nicodemus seeing the nails driven into Jesus' hands. And Nicodemus would know with certainty because he's seen this before, what happens next. The nails get driven in the person's hands and then it takes about five to 10 seconds, but the person is then raised up high into the air. And Jesus is now fixated upon the Roman cross. And picture Nicodemus on that day 
standing there and maybe all the images begin to make sense for the first time. He's quaking and shivering. What, what have we done? What have we done? My God, what have we done? And for the first time, it begins to make sense. The symbol of their suffering, the cross, is being transformed into the symbol of their healing. And the children of Israel look up and behold the blazing glory of the cross of Christ. And he realizes, I can't do nothing to get my healing. There is nothing I can do for my healing. I've been bit. I have to do exactly what they did in Numbers 21. I must look to the cross of Christ and say, heal me, my God. I have nothing to bring to this table. I have nothing to offer you. And then you can imagine him going, yeah, yeah, Numbers 21. I'm not, I was never bitten by a snake. Wait a second. How, how, do, how does all this story work? The Bible starts by declaring all of us have the venom of the snake running through our veins. The curse, the fall, the images. Numbers 21. Behold the servant lifted up. The symbol of suffering is now transformed to the symbol of healing. No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Super bizarre verses, right? This is John 3.15. Now, how do you know all this comes together? What does John do when he writes his gospel after he puts all this weird imagery together? John 3, 15, next verse. John 3, 16. Do you get it? Do you understand? Do you see? That which is born is spirit is spirit. Do you understand heavenly things? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And how do you believe? You look to the cross. And what do you tell someone who has been an obedient, moral, upright person his entire life, who is trusted in their own religious actions, who is trusted in their own moral superiority? What do you tell to someone who cannot fathom the idea that they might need a radical conversion? You say, Nicodemus, let me cut you off. You, yes, you, you must be born again, even you. You stand an equal footing before the cross with the prostitute, the criminal, the murderer. We all have been bit by the snake and we all need the same solution. The children of Israel look up to the snake on the pole. The children of Adam look up to Jesus, nailed to a Roman cross, the symbol of suffering transformed for our healing. Now, who is Nicodemus for us today? Because you're going like, I'm not like part of the Sanhedrin, the religious elite. Who's the Nicodemuses in the church world today? They are people who have been raised Christian from good Christian parents and go to church all of the time. Might have even went to Awanas when they were little. They know the Bible, got tons of Bible verses memorized. But they've never bowed the knee to King Jesus and say, I have nothing to bring you. Heal me. And let me say this, 
Churches in America are filled with Nicodemuses, people who are culturally Christian, people who are raised Christian and think they're okay, people who just come just enough to ease their guilty conscience. And Jesus will look at you and say, you must be born again. To the woman at the well, he may say, words of grace, I have living water to offer you. To the thief on the cross, he may say, today you will be with me in paradise, but to Nicodemus, not good enough. You must be born again. But the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ is as he gives the guilty verdict, God himself gives the cure and the answer and the remedy. What must you do to be saved? Look at the cross and say, I believe. Look up to the symbol of suffering now transformed for your healing. Now, how do I know the issue with Nicodemus? How do we even know Nicodemus was there? How do I know Nicodemus was in Jerusalem, that he would have saw Jesus even crucified? And how do I know he even made sense of the images and, and became a Christian? How do we know that? Well, John ends his gospel letting us know. John says this immediately after the crucifixion. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. When did Nicodemus first come to see Jesus? At night, in hiding. When does Nicodemus, and he's joined by a guy named Joseph of Arimathea, when does Nicodemus go to Jesus the next time? At the moment of his crucifixion, and whom does he go to? He goes to the ruling body to ask for the body of Jesus. Crucifixion victims were usually left on the cross to add shame, an insult to the person and to the people. But maybe because Pilate thought he was an innocent man or maybe because it's a religious holiday, they had the courage to go and say, hey, can we take the body down? But before when Nicodemus didn't want to be associated with Jesus, now he's being associated with Jesus at his worst hour. You do not want to be with someone who was just crucified for treason by the Roman Empire. You do not want to be associated with that guy in this moment. Were his disciples asking these questions? No, they're gone. But Nicodemus and Joseph and Arimathea go and ask for the body, and they bring expensive spices to honor the dead. Touching a dead body like this would make you ritually unclean. Big deal for a guy like Nicodemus. In addition, because this was a kind of vile act, this act was in Jewish culture reserved for the wrong reasons, just for women. Women were the ones to go take care of the dead bodies. That's why in the gospel accounts, it's always the women who are there taking care of the body. But in a culture of, of masculine pride, Nicodemus does the job of a woman. So what is John trying to tell us? Nicodemus went, went, once went at night, now he comes in day. He associates with Jesus after the crucifixion. He gives of his own money and his own time. He then becomes ritually unclean to do the right thing, and then he does a shameful act in his culture. Now I'm sure Nicodemus doesn't have it all figured out, and I'm sure Nicodemus isn't like, just wait three days, he's coming back. But I can tell you this, John wants you to see what the gospel has done to Nicodemus. The once coward man who came at night 
now goes, takes the dead body off the cross, becomes unclean for Jesus, feels shame for Jesus, and does the right thing and puts him in a proper tomb for Jesus. This is what the gospel does. It changes you from the inside out. It's almost like it makes you born again. The things you would never do, you now do with courage and confidence, not lacking fear completely, but from a different posture. You become a different person. And if we were to go around in this room, we would all see different examples of that, different sin barriers that we had, different things that stopped us from believing. And we would also have stories of how, although God judged us guilty, he provided our healing, and he found a way how to penetrate and break through the barriers of our sin and our circumstance. And for some of you, it's shame. For some of you, it was pride. Whatever it may be, God takes you. He finds you where you're at. The wind blows where it blows, where it wishes. And it speaks with a voice, and it calls you by name, and it changes you from the inside out. As we go through this series, we're going to be looking at different ways Jesus is doing this to different types of people. This is one of the most important things we could teach you as a church. It's also one of the most practical things. It's not just for evangelism, it's for how you minister to one another. You will need to know people's barriers, their hurts, their sin, their pain, and then you will need to learn how the gospel provides healing for that. And sometimes it's chop off your hand, don't go to hell. And sometimes it's I have living water, my grace is sufficient. But you have to know there's no one thing that fits, fits it all. And Jesus is the master at this and he's gonna walk us through this in these next five weeks. My challenge for you today as we close is this. I want you to be thinking and asking God, um, who are the people in my life that need the touch of Jesus? They need healing in their life. They need grace and forgiveness. They need to be convicted. Who are they, Lord? And help me, help me communicate your gospel in a way that they need. I mean, think about names right now. And we do this for two reasons. One, because if we love and care for people, we want people to know Jesus, because knowing Jesus now is the best thing ever. It's not just about going to heaven. That's like a bonus. That's a side bonus. Knowing Jesus in the present, I count all things as rubbish, trash, compared to knowing Jesus Christ. It's a wonderful thing to introduce someone to Jesus, but more importantly, on the basis of this series is this. Jesus says, go therefore after what declaration? Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. Go. And when the king says that, you listen. If you've been born again, you listen and you go. And so may Jesus encourage us and encourage you on this five-week journey looking at the master, Jesus, and how he confronts sin and objections to the gospel and has his truth and his crate penetrate hearts and mind. Who are the people? As we close in prayer, give those people to the Lord right now. Father God, we're all guilty and we've all been bitten by a snake. We thank you give you praise and, and, and thank, we thank you, Lord, that, that, you, that you yourself became the symbol of suffering to provide us healing. 
Lord, give us, give us the names. Tell us who, who you want us to, to help, who you want us to, to, to minister to, who you want us to, to speak gospel truth to, Lord. And when we do so, Lord, we ask for strength and wisdom on what to say. We ask you to, to, to whisper to us, to tell us, how, how work the conversation so that at the end of the day, your son may be glorified, Lord. We thank you for the example of Nicodemus. And I pray specifically for people who have, um, are in this church, South Valley Community Church, who grew up in church, who know the Bible, who even come, but at the end of the day are just cultural Christians trusting in their works or the faith of their parents for salvation. May you convict their hearts as I speak these words right now. And maybe for the first time, Lord, by your spirit, point them to the cross and may they in their heart and mind say, I've got nothing to bring to you, Lord. Heal me, save me. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the work of the cross. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Go out, be blessed, get those names in your head, pray for them throughout the week.